this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. Today, I'm ready to receive the incorruptible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. I'll never be the same. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Now your best shout ever. Oh, yeah, that was good. Genesis chapter 50. We're going to start in verse 15. And to give you context, this is hopping in at the tail end of the story of Joseph. I'm reading out of the ESV version today. <laughs> when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I'm in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would just open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us today. That you would create confidence and conflict in our heart. That we would wrestle with scripture for ourselves to see if what we're hearing is true. And to put it into practice in our life. To live in the kingdom of God on the earth right now. Living out what you've taught us to do. Even when it, we don't feel like doing what you've taught us to do. That we would learn maturity in that way. And we would become disciples who make disciples. And we would become people who show others the way to follow Jesus God, we thank you that you've brought us here together today, that we've worshiped together, that we've heard prophetic word together, and God, that you've challenged us to take bold steps of faith already. We ask that you would just bless our time, the remainder of our time, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You can be seated. So good to be back. I left Megs and the kids at home this time, so I've been doing things a lot faster, it seems like. I made a gas stop and a restroom stop in six minutes on the way up here. It was amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that was possible anymore, uh, but they're at home, they're watching today, and I miss them, of course, and uh, everybody uh, just keeps asking, you know, where are the kids, where are the kids, you know, are you bringing them up next time, are you bringing them up, it's like, yeah, it's just me, it's just me, it's okay, it's all good. I know uh, why I'm here today, it became clear right there in the middle of worship, I'm here to just teach you this morning and to give you some support scripturally uh, for what we just experienced prophetically. Because what just happened in this room was profound. And I want you to go away from here today knowing that it was profound. And I want you to consider what we prayed together. And the intensity of the moment was intentional. And I want to give you some tools. I want to give you the word that will equip you to put these things into practice. And I just, I, I thank you for trusting me to preach God's word to you today and to teach God's word to you today. I love this story. It comes at the very end 
of the book of Genesis. And I included those few preceding verses because, as Ryan said, they give you just a glimpse into what's happening in this story and what caused Joseph to make the statement that what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. I want to challenge you today. My hope today is that you will go out of here and you will continue or begin to pray bold, powerful, imperfect prayers to a perfect God in an imperfect world. To pray bold, powerful, imperfect prayers to a perfect God for, a perfect, for an imperfect world. When you read the story of Genesis, it's pretty confusing at times. One of the things that you see is the first 11 chapters build this tension in your heart that God created and it was good, man rebelled, and then God expelled. And he expelled for their good, saying that I will not allow them to stay in this state, but through the seed of this woman I will send a descendant and he will crush the head of the enemy, although his heel will be struck. And of course, those words were fulfilled on the hill of Golgotha when Jesus came, dying our death in our place so that we could have life. He crushed the works of Satan on our behalf. He fulfilled what God said that day. But God had to expel when they rebelled, sending them out into the world, and the wickedness of men spread quickly. In fact, the first 11 chapters are just this dynamic summary with so many gaps of information that leave, it leaves people confused all the time. But ultimately what it's doing is it's building tension showing that the world has rebelled against God, has turned from the, the worship of their creator to the worship of creation or the worship of their, their selves. And it reaches its climax in the story of the Tower of Babel where they say in their hearts, let us make a name for ourselves. God comes and judges what they have done, confuses them and scatters them, and then zeroes in on one man and says to him in reverse of what the crowd had said, I will make your name great. They said, let us make a great name for ourselves. God scatters their works and then zeroes in on one man. And the remainder of the book of Genesis follows this man's family, which ultimately sets up the rest of the Old Testament, which we then connect in the book of Matthew, when the writer shows us that Jesus himself was a descendant of Abraham and a fulfillment of the covenant promises given to Abraham. And by putting our trust in Christ, we also become children of God, receive the promises given to Abraham. And so what you see is a man that you expect to be morally upright because God selected him. God said, you will be the one by which through your descendants I will bless all nations. I will make your name great. I will multiply your descendants and I will bless all nations through your name. But these promises, Abraham, are conditional. And then you fast forward the story to a moment when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham that secures those conditional promises, making them unconditional. And this is a type and a shadow that points ahead to our relationship with Christ in that he saved us unconditionally, loves us unconditionally, uses us unconditionally because none of us are as good as we may think we are. 
None of us have done all that we've been called to do, and we have definitely done what we have not been called to do. But yet every single day, even in our weak moments, God uses us to advance his kingdom in the world. He takes the works of his perfect son and he gives them to his imperfect creation, making them sons and daughters. And we are justified by faith and faith alone like Abraham. The people that were living at the time of Christ, they said to themselves in pride, we are the children of God. We are the children of Abraham. We are his descendants. And Jesus comes along in John 8 and says, well, you don't behave like you're the children of Abraham. You behave like you're the children of the devil. In fact, if you're an heir of blood from Abraham, it doesn't make you a child of God. What makes you a child of God is faith. Abraham was a man of faith, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And so what you see in the book of Genesis following the story of Abraham is that God had a plan to begin with an imperfect man to bring about his perfect son to be the savior of the world and because of Jesus and God's purpose of blessing all nations with his son, he endured the weakness and evil and flaws of the Abraham family. And if you've read this story, you know it gets pretty wild pretty fast. Abraham immediately uses deception as a tool to try to keep himself safe in Egypt during a plague. His son Isaac does the exact same thing, uses deception as a tool. Jacob comes along, uses deception to steal the birthright and blessing of his brother. And then his sons are as equally wicked as him, except for one young man who rises above the rest in moral character character that God raises up and is a type and a shadow of Christ and is persecuted by his brothers and is used by God in every place that he finds himself, rises to a place of leadership quickly and eventually becomes a protector and a overseer of Egypt and his family. And he summarizes for us all of the activity in the book of Genesis when he says, What man has meant for evil, God has used for good. God has meant for good. God has redeemed for good. And it's amazing the contrast that you see what takes place in this story because Abraham goes to Egypt in a plague and uses deception to keep himself safe where Joseph, in contrast, he uses honesty and it gets him in trouble. His honesty gets him in trouble with his brothers. His honesty and integrity gives him the promotions that he receives, and he, in fact, ends up being the ruler of Egypt in a plague where his ancestors were expelled from Egypt because of their deception. And God uses even the evil actions of these people to propel his purpose through history, and he uses these moments to show those whom he loves that he gets glory out of everything in our life. He does not let anything go to waste. And Paul later in the book of Romans summarizes all of this when he says, when I consider the present sufferings of this world, I know it cannot compare to the eternal glory that we will receive with him in the age to come. And in this present time and in this present tension, we moan with groanings too deep to understand for the manifestations of the sons of God. And now we pray and don't know what we should pray, but we've been given a spirit that enables us to pray the will of God on behalf of the kingdom of God. And we persevere in this, knowing that he predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. He predestined us and called us and justified us that we would all 
also be glorified. He's made us a part of his family. He's adopted us, and the Spirit bears witness to our conscience that we are children of God, crying, Abba, Father. And he works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. You know what? Paul was trying to do. He was trying to wrestle with something we all wrestle with, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, our perfect Savior calling us imperfect people to his perfect plan, loving on other imperfect people. It is paradox. It doesn't make sense. It seems to contradict, but yet God has called us to be participants in his kingdom, to pray, to provide, to proclaim, and to do so boldly because we are his children. We don't have to limp into his presence, but Hebrews says because he is a good high priest, we can come to him confidently at his throne and we can make petition on behalf of ourselves and others. Every weakness and need we can bring to him with boldness because we are his children, but even more so, he is a good high priest. When I was 17 years old, many of you know the story, a bunch of things had been happening in the years leading up to that where our family, for the most part, had just been this good, southern, typical family. Hard-working dad, hard-working mom, loving dad, loving mom, living life, playing ball, going to school, doing the things that you do. Mom and dad were community coaches, hard workers, just doing their thing, and about the time that I was 14, my dad gets injured on the job. He's the sole provider of our household. He doesn't have insurance. He owned his own business, and now he's injured with a broken leg, and he begins to over-medicate to manage his pain so that he can get back to work and take care of his family. He becomes addicted to that medication and becomes an alcoholic and a drug addict. Fast forward a few years later, his addiction takes hold and our world starts to unravel. My mom had been out of church for 20 years at this point. My family didn't grow up in church. And it was this event in our family's life that moved upon my mom's heart. The event stirred her so much that she returned to this foundational faith that she, is, she had as a little girl. She went back to church for the first time and she led me and my siblings back to or to church for the first time. And we became just this little Christian family almost overnight. We experienced revival. My siblings and I came to know Christ first time in our life. And we were all so united because we became believers in the midst of some serious pain and confusion. And when you have pain and confusion, you have really two options. You can grow bitter and silent or you can grow bold and prayerful. And what happened for all of us right away is that we became prayerful, and we didn't really know what we were doing. We had a very strong motivation to pray because we wanted our dad to be well. For the last four years, I've been teaching at a place called the Savannah Mission Bible Training Center. I was invited to teach there years back, as a part, uh, as a group of pastors and at a church there in Savannah. And I went originally because that's what they did, right? It was a partner of the church. They supported them and their mission. And I was just a part of the rotation. And I was teaching there for about two months. And something occurred to me one day while I was teaching there because what I saw was interesting. There was a person 
who had arrived at this rehab house about the same time that I started teaching. And the first time they were there was, I think, the same time I was there for the first time. And they looked very frustrated that they were there. They looked mad, arms crossed, not engaging, not paying attention. And as the, the time passed, they moved to the back of the room into the leadership spot. Now, I'm seeing this every seven days. I'm coming in and I'm teaching every other week, every week, once a month. And I noticed this person had moved to the back of the room who was mad that they were there, and now they were leading the room. Now they were helping other residents. Now they were more focused. They were alert. They were watching. And it was a pretty profound thing that happened in that moment. I just began to think about my dad. And if you know my story, you know that some years ago my dad passed away. My dad never experienced the victories that we prayed for. My dad was a believer in Christ, and he wrestled with his addiction until the day that he died. And he never had the victories that we prayed for. But we saw great progress. We saw Christ do some amazing things in him. Things that just move the heart and move the heart of other people. And when I, was a, when I first became a Christian and his addiction had first come to the surface, I was motivated to pray right away because I just wanted my dad back. And I would pray not only for him, but I would pray for the people that were in the places that he would go because he went away quickly to rehabilitation. He was in five different houses. And it wasn't until he got to Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, that he experienced real transformation. He experienced the gospel. And God began to do just a powerful work in his heart. And this place that I teach at and serve at now is very similar to the Calvary House. They have an 84% success rate of seeing people rehabilitated, rebuilding their lives. And, and now that I've been teaching there for four years, I've seen people move from the front row to the back row again and again and again and again and again. But it was years ago, after I saw that first person make their progress, right as I was opening the text, I remember I was just going to go in and preach, and God stopped me to tell the story similar to what I'm telling you now, and to let them know that I was honored to be there because I had just had a realization. At 17 years old, I would sit in my room and I would, pray, I would pray for my dad. And I would pray for not only him, but I would pray for the people that were in those places with him. And I would pray for the staff that was trying to help him. And I realized that now I got to be a part of their family's prayers. That their children and their spouses, and their family, and their friends were somewhere praying prayers very similar to the ones I used to pray for my dad. And that I was now fortunate to participate in their victories and to see them achieve things that my dad never did. And over the last four years, I have seen time and time again people move from the front row to the back row. I've seen them graduate. I've seen them rebuild their families, rebuild their careers, be reunited with their children. And every single time, think about Joseph's words. I think about Paul's words. What was meant for evil, God meant for good. What I can't understand in this life, God understands. What doesn't seem like wisdom to me instinctively in my flesh is wisdom to God. I don't understand. I'm imperfect. 
My understanding is imperfect. He's all-knowing. I'm not all-knowing. I see through a mirror dimly. He sees plainly, and I will not see plainly until I see him face to face. But yet, he has called me to be a participant in the kingdom of God, to pray boldly without apology, to pray powerfully without apology, to pray constantly, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, believing that when I ask, I receive, I'm given Bread, not stones. I'm given fish, not serpents. I'm given good gifts because I serve a good father. And I'm willing to pray and surrender the results to him and pray constantly without ceasing, believing that when I pray, mountains will be cast into the sea. That I'm not in control, he is. And that he has sent me to be a participant and to be the one who prays, kingdom come, will be done. And that many times people don't see prayers answered simply because they don't pray them. And then God quickly says to another, pray this prayer. When you look at the story of scripture, you see a bunch of people who said yes to God, but struggled to say yes to God. And I've thought to myself so many times, how many other people did he approach? Who are the people in history that God approached, that he gave an opportunity, that opened a door for, who said no, and whose stories never made it into the history of salvation? Pastor Mark and I didn't talk about this at all. But when you begin to think about these things, you think about what we're facing in the world we're living in today, when you think about all of the things that can become confusing and create conflict in your heart, you begin to wonder, man, how should I pray? When should I pray? Is it worth to pray? Am I work, is it working when I pray? And what you have right there at the beginning of the book of Acts is you have an example of prayer from the apostles. So I want to read that to you again from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23. And this is why I told you I know I'm on assignment today. Because it says when they were released, meaning that they had just been released from prison from the Sanhedrin and the same spiritual leaders that were a part of the crucifixion of Jesus had been a witness to these men and said these men have been with Jesus. We know it because of the way they speak. These uneducated Galilean fishermen speak with the same authority that Jesus spoke with. In verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, they quote the psalm in verse 27, they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak and continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know what you hear in this prayer are some pretty profound things. Number one, they say, Sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, you are in control of this universe. 
Everything that happened to Jesus happened because you wanted it to happen. You anointed and appointed Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders to be participants in the death of your son for the sake of all humanity. The promise that you made all the way back in Genesis, you have fulfilled. You are the one who has orchestrated all of these events. And through the death of your son, now we have life. And through your servant David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he quotes scripture. What are they saying? They're saying that we have the scripture. We have the word of God because God inspired men and women to participate in this written revelation that gives us life. But also, God, we pray that you will give us as your servants boldness to preach the word of God and to participate in the kingdom of God, laying hands on the sick, providing for needs, doing the works of the kingdom that you predestined us to do, that we would be a participant in the transformation of the world by your power, not ours. God, give us boldness even in the face of threats. Give us boldness even in the face of persecution. And what you find in this prayer is this perfect blend of relying on God's sovereignty and taking their own responsibility. Prayers like that, man, they create confidence and conflict at the same time. Knowing what God's part is and what my part is. And when you read the book of Romans, I believe Paul just made it very practical for us. Romans 8, he takes us up and he tells us that when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf the will of God. He says, we moan and groan inwardly with words too deep to understand, and we don't know what we should pray. Our prayers are imperfect. Our prayers are inconsistent. Our prayers lack zeal. Our prayers lack so many things, yet we have been given God's helpful presence. When we believe in Christ, we have received his spirit and he prays the will of God on our behalf. I remember when I was first taught about the Holy Spirit, somebody told me he was my comforter and my counselor. I was like, awesome. I've got a butler and a therapist in the sky. This is great, right? And that's what I thought. I thought comforter, counselor, he's like a psychiatrist, right? I've got some therapy in prayer. But what I learned later, what was so transformational, is the word counselor is the same word used for advocate in 1 John. Meaning counselor is not a psychological term, it's a legal term. So when I go into the courtroom and I don't know what I should say, the counselor helps me to speak. He makes my case on my behalf. So when I pray and I don't know what to say, I pray anyway. I pray imperfect, bold, powerful prayers from, a, from the power given to me by a perfect Savior for an imperfect world because I have been given God's helpful presence through the Holy Spirit and there should never be a moment in my life where I think because I don't know what to pray that that's a reason not to pray. But instead, I pray. And I say, God, I trust you and I surrender to you imperfect prayers knowing that you work together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purposes. There are moanings and groanings in me too deep to understand because this world is so imperfect and I have experienced 
experienced its imperfections in myself and in others. And it weighs upon my heart. I long for the manifestation of the sons of God in your return and the coming of your kingdom. I don't know what I should pray, but I thank you that through your son and his death on the cross, I have received the promise of the Holy Spirit. You have been faithful to your covenant promises. You sent your son and you poured out your spirit that your sons and daughters would prophesy. Your sons and daughters would spread the good news and the knowledge of God across the earth like the waters cover the sea. You fulfilled everything you said you would and in some way, somehow, you've made me a part of that. So I pray. I rejoice in hope. I'm patient in tribulation. I'm constant in prayer. Pray without ceasing. How can I live in a world serving a perfect Savior that is so imperfect? I rejoice with those that rejoice. I weep with those who weep. We are a peculiar, paradoxical people. He is already on the throne, yet I don't always see that plainly lived out in my life. I'm living in a time between his first coming and his return where it is already his kingdom, but not yet. So he sent me. He sent me and you and his church as light in the darkness to provide for the needs, even the needs of our enemies. Feed the hungry enemy. Give water to the thirsty enemy. Overcome evil with good. Don't return insult for insult. Don't return evil for evil, but with love and gentleness and respect. Have reason for the hope that you have, knowing that your gentleness and your kindness may lead them to repentance. God will use your good works as a light in darkness that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You You are the light of the world. You are sent. You're not just saved. You're sent to participate in the salvation of others. Praying imperfect prayers by the power of the Holy Spirit with boldness because he bears witness to your heart that you are children of God. And when you look at what God did in the beginning and you look at what he's doing now, you find this harmony that brings confidence and conflict. You see an example in the apostles that you can follow, leaning on God's sovereign rule, yet taking responsibility for your part, and then you lean into the teachings of someone like Paul, and you hear this reassuring message that I must pray without ceasing. Pray constantly because it's me and you and us that he has decided to bring the kingdom to earth through. And isn't it amazing that the prayer Jesus gave us to pray, the prayer that we should be praying every day in some form, begins by proclaiming the headline of heaven. Our Father, who is in heaven, we are humble and reverent to your name that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. If you're frustrated about the headlines, man, just remind yourself what the headline in heaven is today. He is on the throne, and we are a peculiar people called for such a time as this. And I have good news for you. It may not sound like good news to some of you, but I have good news for you. He's going to use you no matter who's running the country. 
He's going to use you in every season, every four years, every eight years, every 20 years. He appoints and anoints every leader that has ever existed for the purpose of bringing about the return of his son because you are a kingdom you are a part of a kingdom greater than any kingdom that has ever been on this earth christians were a part of rome christians have been a part of america and christians will be a part of every other nation that is ever founded but we play a pivotal role in every nation that we are a part of and one of the most powerful things that we do to show people the kingdom of God is we don't live and behave in the wisdom of the world. We don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, mockery for mockery. We live like Christ, wise and cunning. We use the wisdom of his word and we do the things that seem unwise to the world. One of the most powerful things he called us to do that confuses evil is to do good to them expecting nothing in return. He said, what good is it to love those that love you? The world does that. Love those that hate you. Feed them when they're hungry. Give them water when they're thirsty. Clothe them when they're naked. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul brings about the practicality of everything he said in Romans and taking into consideration everything said in Genesis, everything he learned from the apostles, and he got to a point even in Romans 13 where he says, we as followers of Jesus live in submission to the governing authorities, understanding that they have been appointed by God, yet we know, like Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, we are appointed at times to shine a light in the face of darkness, like John the Baptist with Herod. We are called to live in a way that shows the glory of God. And if that creates confidence and conflict in your heart at the same time, good. Wrestle with God's word and ask him for the opportunity every single day. Just as Pastor Mark, man, prayed this morning with prophetic boldness. That we won't cower. And we won't pray cowardly prayers. We will pray bold prayers. Not getting lost in our idea that somehow we should be praying perfect prayers. But no, instead, I'm going to rely on my advocate. I'm going to rely on my counselor. And when I pray for myself, for my family, for my community, and the world around me, I'm going to pray with boldness knowing that the helpful presence of the Holy Spirit is with me, praying for me, praying for me, with me, in me, for an imperfect world. And know that no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what you are facing right now, I believe Paul said, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Because when we are patient with God's plan, everything makes sense later. And I'll tell you one final thing and then we're done. The apostles themselves, when Jesus was crucified, they thought God had been defeated. They were confused by his crucifixion. To them, the crucifixion looked like a defeat. But as many of them wrote later, when he was resurrected from the dead, everything made sense. And that's why he has sent you and me into this world with resurrection power. He says, I will clothe you with power to be my witnesses 
until the end of the age to the ends of the earth. Heavenly Father, that's what we want today. John the Baptist said, there's one coming after me who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You said that you would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You would close us with power to send us to the ends of the earth. Lord, help, help us to be aware of the needs within our own households, the needs of our own communities, the needs in the world around us. Make us bold witnesses, praying bold prayers, not getting lost in our own imperfections or confusion, but with confidence praying as children of God, knowing that you counsel us as we pray. You are our advocate as we pray, and you pray for us as our high priest. You make up all the difference. You fill in all the gaps. You interpret our hearts when we can't articulate what we want to say. You help us pray. And you fill our hearts with boldness to proclaim. You fill our hearts with thankfulness to rejoice. You fill our hearts with compassion to provide. You fill our hearts because you are in control. So Father, in the face of threats, like your apostles, we pray together today, fill us with your Holy Spirit and shake what can be shaken. Give us confidence to continue in what you've called us all to do. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.